we find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you. We're just going to be looking mainly at the first two verses uh, there, and this is the second part in our series on true worship, and we're going to be picking up pretty much where we left off uh, last time. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, all our talks go on the uh, website, so you'll find it um, there if you want to during the week. Why don't I pray as we come to God's word. Father God, thank you uh, for your word. Father, thank you uh, for all the good things that we see in there. Father, thank you that you don't leave us without uh, an idea about how to please you, how to worship you. We pray, Father, as we come to your word, help us to respond rightly. Father, give us open ears, give us soft hearts, uh, that we might be living sacrifices as we've just been singing. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What is worship? There's a lot of confusion around, isn't there? You hear some confusing statements sometimes in church, and I've heard a few over the years. Things like, we're going to move into a time of worship now. And it sort of begs the question, what, what were we doing before? Uh, or we're going to stop worshipping now. Uh, that's a bit more scary, isn't it? To, to do what? Even in songs, it can be quite confusing, can't it? We, we sing a song, I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. And yet we're singing it, aren't we? So it's a bit confusing. Is worship what we do on a Sunday? Or is worship something that we do every day? Is it something mystical or is it something mechanical? Has it got to do with lighting and, and mood or love and the Holy Spirit? Can you worship when you're sad? Do you have to prepare to worship? Well, we said last week that worship is something we do in spirit and in truth. We saw that the foundation of worship is Jesus Christ and his word and his sacrifice. We saw last week again that geography is no longer what matters. What matters is where your heart is rather than where your feet are. And we saw in fact that Jesus had broken down that sacred secular divide. So there are no holy places anymore. We don't meet in a holy place. It's quite obvious in here because we've got climbing walls and things like that. But uh, even our new building is not a holy place, so to speak. So Jesus has broken down uh, that distinction. There's no holy time in a way anymore. The whole of life is holy. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. But what does that actually look like then? If we say that worship is all the way through the week, what does that actually mean? Because actually that could become nothing then, couldn't it? How does that work itself out in the nine to five? Is it sort of that we, we start living in a musical? I don't know if you've ever wanted to live in a musical. Uh, uh, sometimes, you know, it's tempting, isn't it? You know, where people start breaking out in song every few minutes and, and start singing. Everyone seems to know the words, even though they've never uh, sung it before. Is that it? Are we supposed to be breaking out in song? Well, this morning, we're going to be looking uh, at just that question, not whether we live in a musical, but <laughs> the, the nature of worship. What is it that we're really talking about? And our passage really pushes us on in our understanding of what true worship is. So firstly, the why of worship, the mercy of God. Have a look with me again at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. We said last time that worship is always a response to God. Well, here it is again. Worship here is not something that we do to earn God's favour, it's not something that we even initiate, really. It's the second half of a conversation, so to speak. God speaks, or acts, or reveals, and we respond. 
And what we have written here is that same pattern that we saw last week. What is God's half of the conversation? Well, God has shown mercy. That's Paul's summing up of the whole of his letter to the Romans so far. God has not treated us as our sins deserve. Instead, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross as a sacrifice for those sins, to die in our place that we might live. Worship really begins at the cross of Christ, because worship is in response to God's mercy. And his mercy was ultimately shown at the cross. So Paul has spent the previous chapters unpicking this, showing us, first of all, our deep and desperate need of Christ. He showed us that we were guilty, sold as slaves to sin, under God's wrath, deserving his anger, not his mercy. And yet God has shown his mercy in sending Christ to take God's anger by dying as a sacrifice, taking God's wrath, to redeem us from slavery to sin by paying our ransom with his own blood, to declare us not guilty before a righteous God by taking the penalty himself. Jesus has done all that is needed to be right with God. He has made peace with us, uh, for, for us, sorry, with God by becoming our mediator, by becoming our go-between. I mean, this is so good, isn't it, that if it wasn't written down for us to believe, we wouldn't dare make this up, would we? The amazing grace and mercy that God has shown us. Jesus did it all. And that's how this verse starts. This is how that letter starts. So whatever we are doing with worship, we are not earning God's favour by worship. Actually, we're responding to something God has done. We're responding to that free gift of mercy. So what is our response to that sacrifice? Well, our second point, the what of worship. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Have a look again at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, in the Old Testament, worship mainly consisted of offering sacrifices. You would bring bulls or sheep or goats or lambs. We saw that a lot in the book of Leviticus, didn't we, last year? As we went through all those different sacrifices, there was a lot of sacrificing uh, lambs and different animals. <laughs> but in a book like Leviticus, that's supposed to regulate the worship practices of the nation, did you notice there was a significant or notable absence of singing and music? You notice that? We see a lot of sacrifices, but we don't see a lot of singing. Now, we see many characters in the Old Testament singing. The song of Moses, accompanied by Miriam on her tambourine. The song of Hannah, the song of Mary in the New Testament. The song of Elizabeth in the New Testament. All of these are spontaneous responses to God's rescue or provision. It's interesting, isn't it, that they don't seem to wait until they're in a temple or a tabernacle to sing God's praises, do they? They just sing. It's a natural response uh, to what God has done. And the same is true of most of the Psalms. They're composed, most of them, by David on the run, aren't they? He's nowhere near the temple. He's, he's singing how much he wants to be there. Some of them are composed for special occasions, and a few of them do seem to be composed for temple worship. But we see many characters sing in the Bible... But the norm for worship, actually, if you look through the Bible, is offering sacrifices. 
So think through characters in the Bible that you see offering sacrifices. Cain, Abel, Noah, Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Jethro, Gideon, Samuel, David, Solomon, Zerubbabel, New Testament, Mary, Joseph. Even where they don't actually offer them themselves, we see kings and other people commanding that sacrifices be offered. Josiah, Hezekiah, Ezra, Nehemiah. Actually, the norm for worship, the norm all the way through, is offering of sacrifices. And that makes sense of our singing cows verse from last week. If you remember, Moses said that when he went to worship in the wilderness, he needed to take the cattle with him. We were saying if worship consisted of singing, that would make no sense. But it makes sense now, doesn't it? But actually, they're taking the cattle to offer them as sacrifices. That was the norm for worshipping God. So it's not that singing isn't there, don't hear me wrong. But singing isn't the heart of worship. It's not what it's really all about. The norm of Old Testament worship was offering sacrifices to God. And we see from our verse here that the norm of New Testament worship is still offering sacrifices. What has changed is the nature of that sacrifice. It's no longer that we bring a sacrifice, it's that we are the sacrifice. We're to present ourselves. In view of God's mercy, we are to offer our own bodies, our very selves. Now that sounds huge if you stop and think about it for a second, doesn't it? Offering the whole of ourselves. But in view of God's huge, unfathomable mercy to us, it's the only reasonable response, isn't it? As the old hymn goes, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. It's the only logical response to mercy so great. And that phrase there, spiritual worship, at the end of uh, verse 1, could equally be translated reasonable worship. You see it sometimes in the footnotes. The Greek word there for spiritual or reasonable is logikos. It's where we get our word logical from. If you're wondering why the translation is so different, logikos could equally be taken as something internal at the very core of your being. So in that sense, spiritual as opposed to physical. Both are true, of course. But the logical, spiritual response to God's mercy towards us is to offer ourselves. More specifically here, in fact, it says, our bodies. Not as dead sacrifices. It's not saying go off and kill yourself. But as living sacrifices. This is Paul's language for Jesus' statement. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take his cross up daily and follow me. That's the same language, isn't it? Bringing yourself as a sacrifice, taking up your cross. It's a daily sacrifice. It's a daily offering of ourselves. So God is not so much looking for martyrs, but for menials. People who lay their lives down every day. It's quite easy in a way, isn't it, to say that you die for someone. Very rarely gets tested, does it? But much harder to say that you'll live for someone, that you'll lay down your life daily for them. But what does it actually look like to offer our body? Again, in one sense, it's easier to chop off a part of our body in one sense, isn't it, than to use it for God. But what if you counted those parts of your body as chopped off, if you like, in the way that Jesus talks about that? 
What if you imagine now that your hand no longer belonged to you anymore? So it's almost like you've chopped it off. What if it belonged to God? How would God use it? How would God use your hands? What if your tongue no longer belonged to you, but to God? How would he use it? What if your feet no longer belonged to you, but to God? How would he use them? Where would he take you? The fact of the matter is, though, that our bodies do belong to God. Paul says so elsewhere in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Conclusion, so glorify God in your body. It's not just our souls that belong to God, our bodies do too. So our spiritual worship is to offer our bodies. The outworking of that inner devotion that we were talking about last week is outward action with our bodies. So here's a quote from Bob Coughlin, who's a a hymn writer. We're deceived if we think singing is necessarily the same as doing. That would be like saying I hug you as I pass by my wife, thinking that my words are a sufficient replacement for actual physical contact. My words are meaningless without actions to back them up. (coughs) Words are easy. Actions are harder. So singing I worship you is not the same as actually worshipping God. Again, not that it's wrong to sing that, it's just not what worshipping really is. Worship is cross-shaped. It's that sacrifice that we have been talking about. Because he is worth everything, we lay down everything. Because he has not withheld anything, but sent his only son to the cross, we do not withhold anything and take up our own cross. And again, that means that this is not just something that we do on a Sunday. This is something that should be happening all the time. Here's a quote from Vaughan Roberts. You cannot judge a church's worship by what happens in the hour or so when they meet on a Sunday. The real test is how its members behave during the week, or the rest of the week. Are they conformists who fit into the world's mould? Or are they true worshippers who obey God? Actually, this is something that affects the whole of our lives, not just what we do on a Sunday. So what is worship then? It's the offering of our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Not just on a Sunday, but every day. Not just in a church building, but everywhere. More worship happens during the week than on a Sunday. But how do we offer our bodies as living sacrifices? What does it actually look like in practice? Because there's a danger if we say the whole of life is worship, that worship becomes nothing. But actually, not only should this change our understanding of what worship is, it should change then our understanding of what our life is day to day. So, the last point, the how of worship, this will be our longest point, the how of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Have a look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What it's saying here is that we use our renewed mind 
to transform the activities and purpose of the members of our body. I'll say that again. We use our renewed mind to transform the activities and purpose of the members of our body. We're to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. The transformation is not the renewed mind. The renewed mind leads to the transformation. It's as though it's saying God's sort of got an insider in us. He's given us a renewed mind, a mind that's being renewed by God's word. Our bodies have not yet truly been redeemed. They will be when Jesus returns. So Paul writes in Romans 8, uh, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruit of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the redemption of our bodies is something still to come. But in the meanwhile, we have a renewed mind, able to tell our fallen bodies what to do, making our fallen bodies worship God, so to speak. In a verse that parallels this in Romans, Romans 6, Paul writes this, Romans 6.13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you see that same sacrificial language of offering, presenting? So we are to consider how to present, offer, devote the different parts of our body to God. Our arms, our legs, our eyes, our stomachs, our mouths, our sex organs, our feet, our brains, our lungs, our livers. And what he's saying here is the world tells us how to use these things. The world tries to conform us to its mould. It tells us what is normal. But here, God's word tells us to be transformed, not conformed. And it's not even how do we use these parts of the body sinfully. It's how do we use these parts of the body normally. That's the part of the problem. So it's not just that we sin with the parts of our body... It's that we let the world around us dictate how we use them. Don't be conformed to the world, says Paul. Be transformed. There are ways that we use our body, patterns in our life as well, that are conformed to the world. And this is where it gets really practical and really personal. It gets personal because it's about how we use our bodies. And because actually that involves all aspects of our lives, doesn't it? Our bodies are a very personal thing and we take them with us everywhere, don't we? But how we are using our bodies, but how are we using our bodies in a way which conforms to our world and our age? And they're quite, it's quite hard to think about really because it's just the norm. This is what everyone else is doing. (coughs) But what we need to use our renewed minds to think about is how could we use them differently? How could we use them in service to God? So let me give you a few examples to help. What about your eyes? How does the world use its eyes? How do you use your eyes? How do we use our eyes? Are they the same? What do you expose your eyes to? Do you watch the same things as the world? Now I'm not proposing here that we hide away from culture, as in, you know, we just don't watch anything, but it should make a difference, shouldn't it? that actually we're Christians, that we have a renewed mind as to what we watch. How could I use my eyes as instruments of righteousness? 
What could I stop looking at? And what could I start looking at instead? William Wilberforce used to go into his garden every day when it wasn't raining, deliberately to stare at God's creation. He'd often stare at a flower or a spider's web for quite a few minutes, probably you know, half an hour, and marvel at the way that God had made these amazing things, such marvels of creation, such marvels of nature. That's using his eyes to worship God. Oh, we'd look at his Bible too, don't get me wrong, but I didn't want to start with that one because I knew that's where you'd all think. But there's more than one right answer here. It's not exhaustive by just looking at our Bibles. There's immense freedom within the boundaries set by the word in how we can worship in this sense. Or what about your ears? How does the world use its ears? What does it listen to? Who does it listen to? Where does it get its advice from? Oprah? Phil and Holly? Mystic Meg? I'm a bit out of date with that one, but... uh, How could we use our ears to glorify God instead? What could we listen to to fill our minds with thoughts of him? Where could we go for better advice than the world can offer? What about our lips? How does the world use its lips? How do we use our lips? Are they the same? The world uses its lips to talk about trivialities, doesn't it? The weather, the Kardashians, the football. God didn't give us lips to talk about the weather. He gave us lips to praise him. He gave us lips to speak truth to one another. He gave us lips to proclaim his name to the nations. And that's just three parts of the body. We're not even off our face at this point. What about the other parts? What we are to do is to use our renewed minds to think this through. We need to actively engage our God-given brains to do this. We said last week, didn't we, that actually real worship engages our heart and our mind. What we need to do is a grown-up mental chorus of heads, shoulders, knees and toes. Do you know what I mean? Working through our bodies. Think about how we just do normal things with them and how we could transform that. Don't ask me about toes, by the way. Knees, you can kneel to pray, can't you? But we need to think this through, don't we? God has given us bodies to worship him. He's given us minds to think it through. So we need to think it through. How can we transform the purpose and the the practicalities of our body? (coughs) So it gets very personal, but it also gets very practical. Because this actually impacts as much on a Monday and a Tuesday as it does on a Sunday. Work becomes part of our worship. Retirement becomes part of our worship. Staying at home becomes part of our worship. Worshipping at home. How is your work conformed to the world around you? Why do you work? For the same reasons as everybody else? How do you work? The same way as everybody else is? What about retirement? Are you using your retirement in the same way as the world? Because that's just what retired people do. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Why do we assume that life would work the same for us? Why should we meet the expectations of what society thinks life should look like, rather than what God thinks it should look like? Often we think that the world doesn't consider Christianity because we're too different, we're too abnormal. 
I think often it's the opposite. We claim to have met with the living God and have been rescued by him, and yet our lives remain remarkably unchanged. What does that say? Something that huge should leave us changed, shouldn't it? It's the same as we come to his living word, the Bible. How can we leave unchanged if we really have God speaking to us? If worship is our response to God's word, and that response is to offer the members of our body in service to God, how could we just leave them as they are? Often though the thought, the fault is not lack of will, but lack of thought. The spirit strengthens us with the will. He helps us as we worship God. But so often we give it so little thought. We don't think about how we worship in the way that we've been describing. We depend on instinct rather than deliberately thinking it through. Now don't get me wrong, our instincts are better as we're renewed. But God wants us to use our full minds in worshipping him. So don't despair if this feels overwhelming or if you feel that you've been a failure in this area. Perhaps all we need to do is set aside some time to think and plan and pray about these things. How can I use my life? How can I use my body to glorify God? How can I worship him with every day, not just Sunday? So do you see this is something much broader and more fundamental than sitting on some Graham Kendrick on the MP3 player or or CD player or, or cassette deck? I don't know where you are with that. This is much bigger than adding 10 minutes in the morning to read your Bible and pray. Those things are good things. Well, Graham Kendrick. Mm. But, uh, but this is about how you spend every waking moment. Even our sleeping moments. Sometimes we can worship God by resting and acknowledging that we are not Superman or Superwoman. Every time we say no to sin and yes to God, we are worshipping When that colleague comes to us and says we should do what they're doing and we say no, we're worshipping. When we say no to that extra slice of cake because we know gluttony is wrong, we're worshipping. Equally, when we take that extra slice of cake and praise God for chocolate and frosting and our very life and breath, we are worshipping God. Do you see what matters here is where our heart is? The attitude that we approach it. The whole of life becomes worship. What matters is that we're aiming to please God and staying within the boundaries of his word. So Romans 14, 5 and 6 talks about this with disputable matters. It says one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. Do you see there, they're worshipping. Even though they're doing opposite things, they're still worshipping God. What counts there is you can give thanks to God for it. It's honouring to him. And that cuts through a lot of the confusion, doesn't it? We don't move into a time of worship. Worship is the whole of our lives. The only time we stop worshipping is when we're sinning. And worship is not just something that you do on a Sunday. It's especially not just part of what we do on a Sunday. It's something we do day in and day out as we lay down our lives in service to God. 
That really is worship service. The only preparation we need for worship is engaging our renewed minds to think through how we should worship him. Not to repay him, we could never do so, but in joyful thankfulness for all that he has done for us. It's a response to God's mercy, as we said right at the beginning. So different from what people think of as religion, isn't it? Not dutiful drudgery, but joyful service to our king. So let's pray that this week God would give us the energy, the time, that God would renew our minds as we think through how to worship him with every single day, every single hour. Let's let our lives be transformed from just being like the world around us to being a life of worship to God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that the whole of our life is to be lived in worship to you, Father. In some ways that sounds daunting, but Father, we thank you that that frees us in so many ways. Father, help us to worship you day in and day out. Father, help us to look at our lives as worship to you and let that transform not just how we think about worship, but how we think about our life. Father, help us to honour you in all that we do, to have you in our thoughts, to be aiming to please you in all that we do. And Father, pray that you give us wisdom as we help one another in that. Help us as we gather together to make our norms different from the world around us. Help us to see that laying down our lives and sacrifice as being something normal that we do together as Christians. So help us, Father, we pray. Give us the energy by your spirit to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.